properly know this great truth as taught through God's word often live their lives as though they did not believe that Jesus was indeed coming back. And he was coming back to judge. Second Peter 3, a passage and a book that relates very closely to the book of Jude, Peter writes these words. This is now the second letter I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am trying to stir up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly." This is how natural man lives. They live every day, every moment of every day, denying the truth that God will, in fact, judge the world and will judge them. And they cast off this truth. They forget it intentionally to the peril of their own soul. And so Jude reminds these readers. He reminds them lovingly, graciously, but boldly, that they need to remember what he says here, the things that they once fully knew and understood. Please stand then as we hear these words read. Jude chapter, well, Jude 1, it's only one chapter, right? Verses 5 through 7. This is God's word. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. All flesh is as the grass, all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, we do give you thanks for this word, which stands forever here through Jude, a reminder to all of us here this morning of the coming judgment that you will bring upon this world and upon all of those who practice evil, who walk in wickedness and rebellion against you. Give us minds that we would hear these things, remember them, and live our lives accordingly, we pray. And bless your word to us, to our hearing and growth in the things of Jesus, even as we long for and await his appearing. We pray this with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, 
I hope as you continue to try at least to memorize the book of Jude, my wife reminded me that what she intended was that as we go through each passage week after week, that you would memorize that passage. So not the whole thing at once, but working on each passage with each week. I hope you're doing that, uh, taking up the challenge as it were. I'm seeking to, but I'm also finding it very difficult, of course. The older we get, the more difficult it is, it seems, to commit these things to memory. But this is particularly a difficult section of God's word, and perhaps one that doesn't sit well with us as we commit it to memory. Jude speaks here so clearly again and forcibly of God's judgment. Uh, Many people in our world today especially uh, wonder how we can reconcile uh, this book and what Jude writes with what they understand, at least in their limited knowledge of God's word, of what it says about God. And what does it say? It says many things, but one of the things it says that our world seems to have latched onto is that God himself is love. God is love. How do you reconcile God's love with the description that Jude gives us, not only in these verses of the coming judgment and the past judgments of wicked nations and peoples, but the way he describes them in the coming verses as well? How do you reconcile the two? Well, interestingly enough, in God's providence, we've been studying 1 John, which is where that verse is found twice in chapter 4 of 1 John. John writes, God is love. Now, he writes it because he's using that as a way to remind the people to whom he's writing that if God is love, his essence, his character, his being, then those who are born of God, right, his children ought to demonstrate that they love and that they love the brethren. That's really his argument. But the statement stands on its own in John. John says God is love, Now, I mentioned this, but I did it in a sort of scattered way. I want to do it more clearly now. But one commentator, in writing about this statement of John and what the description is of God, rightly notes that this is not saying that God is loving because God is, or John is not speaking about God's behavior. John is speaking about God's essential nature, who he is. He is love. Love is the essence of his being. God loves because he is love. All love is from him because, as Calvin says, he is the fountain of love. His nature, his being, his character, and his essence is love. Now, having said that, and it all being true, ancient and modern commentators alike warn that we should not allow this truth to overshadow all of the other attributes of God. We can't do as the world says, that God is love and therefore he is permissive of everything, that he'll love you regardless of whatever it is you choose to do. We we can't say that because that then overshadows all of his other attributes. And yet, and, and here's the point I tried to make on Wednesday and will make today clearly, more clearly, and yet we can say that love is more natural to God than is his wrath. He prefers to express it over and against his more severe attributes. We know that all of his attributes are one harmonious unity. Love and justice, love and wrath are not warring against one another in God's being, in his person. And yet, the Bible says that God delights to show mercy and love. 
And it never says that he delights to show wrath. The Puritan Thomas Watson says that God is more inclinable to mercy and love than he is to wrath. His acts of severity are rather, he writes, forced upon him or from him. The Bible says he does not afflict willingly or from his heart, Lamentations 3.33. But he does willingly and eagerly love, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. He is slow to anger, but he abounds in loving kindness. Isaiah calls God's judgment his strange work, his strange work, or what theologians have called his opera aliena or his alien task. It's alien to him, as it were. The expression of love is more fundamental to who God is, more comprehensive, more revealing of his inclination and the direction of his nature than would be the expression of his judgment. I think those things are very helpful for us to understand. We don't go to the extreme as the world does and say that love just simply cancels out all of his other attributes, dominates them and overwhelms them so that all that he is is love without justice, without wrath. And yet, he does show wrath. He does display his anger against sin. And Jude says, in history, it is very important for his readers, because of the false teachers that they're dealing with, that they remember that God does indeed show wrath and that they pay close attention to it. The world says that God is nothing but love, a distortion of his true nature and character. The Bible says that while he is love in his very nature and being, he is also a just, holy and wrath-filled God. Be assured, the writer of Proverbs says, an evil person will not go unpunished. We must now speak then of this judgment of God and hear the cautionary tales that he tells, lest we fall, as Jude warns, into the same condemnation. Well, what is his main concern as we look at these verses? Well, he states it very clearly. I want to remind you, he says. In this way, he is complimenting them in some sort of backhanded way. He's telling them that they once have known these truths full well, truths that he will speak about. But it seems they have not consciously remembered them, and he warns them that they need to do so. They need to call these lessons, these cautionary tales, to remembrance. For the issue, again, is not that they have never known them, but that they have been living as if they had never known them. These things were well known and common to all the people to whom he writes, but knowing something and living accordingly are two very different things. And all of us know that, don't we? Many of us know the truth. Many of us have memorized the truth, committed large portions of God's word to our memories, and yet we often find ourselves not living accordingly. What he is doing is highlighting how the ways of these false teachers are no different than those upon whom the Lord looked long ago and poured out his judgment, and that to follow in their ways, that is, these cautionary tales, is to invite the same judgment upon themselves. It's a great lesson for us to remember this morning. History is full, 
full of the displays of God's judgment against wickedness and evil. There is no excuse that he gives to us or leaves us in that we can say we never knew that you judged evil, Lord. We never knew that you punished wickedness. We do know. And yet generation after generation arises that believe that somehow God has changed in his ways, that he no longer judges these things. This is the great error that Jude calls the people to, to whom he writes, and he wants them to avoid it. So he reminds them, he says, although you once fully knew it, they had not again slipped from their memories, but they've slipped from their place as lessons, examples in their lives, as the controlling factor of their lives. They were no longer tempering their relationship to God with reverence and awe and influencing their behavior for good as they face temptations that are common to the people of God in all ages. Paul says to the Romans in chapter 15, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And when Paul wanted to make the same point to the Corinthians in chapter uh, 10, I believe, of 1 Corinthians, he wrote these words. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And so these three cautionary tales are for our example this morning to remember, to recall in our minds what God actually did and to learn the lessons lest we fall into the same condemnation as they did. And so there are three of them and you see them here very clearly. Paul seems to write in threes, we'll see that as we continue. He gathers three examples, puts them side by side to teach what he wants to teach. And the first, of course, in verse 5 is the example of the Israelites and their unbelief. Now, right away, there's a translation issue. Some of you have the word Lord, that is the Lord who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. The ESV, I believe correctly, I think it's, it's, it's a non-issue, really, when you look at it. Jesus is Lord. It's the fundamental confession of the Bible and of our faith. Jesus is Lord. So does it really matter in the end? Probably not. But the ESV opted for the most ancient manuscripts, which has the word Jesus. That seems strange to us. We're used to keeping our Bibles very clearly divided. Jesus, we say, doesn't show up until... Matthew and Luke, we don't see or introduce, uh, we aren't introduced to Jesus until then. We just did it in the Christmas story, right? But that's a false understanding of the Bible. Jesus is active in creation. He's active in the Old Testament. Peter says that it was Jesus preaching through Noah when the Noah was preaching as a preacher of righteousness. And so Jesus is active, fully active in the Old Testament. And so I think Jude rightly says it's Jesus here who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. This people, of course, is the people of God. The one he called his special possession, his treasure and delight. The people upon whom he was pleased to pour out his mercy and grace. And yet note what Jude says. Many of them, and we know it was many of them, it was the overwhelming majority of them, who were delivered out of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt, by the powerful hand of God, many of them were destroyed. They were judged. They were punished because they did not believe. They saw the hand of God 
in the plagues that came upon Egypt. They saw the deliverance of God as they were rescued from that bondage miraculously, beautifully. They sang and rejoiced as God literally delivered them from their enemies right in the Red Sea, right as they were ready to overwhelm them. They saw his protection by the cloud of fire and the cloud that governed by day and by night. In all of this, they ought to have been a people who remembered these things, but they did not. Most of them were destroyed, those who did not believe. They became grumbling and complaining people, failing to trust in God. We often say, don't we, how, how, how impossible it seems to us if we had seen those things in person, right? If you'd seen those things in person, in the wilderness, God's deliverance of that people, how is it possible to imagine that such a people could turn away from the God who did that and to reject him and to not believe and to rebel against him? It's the heart of unbelief that dwells still within every one of us. Make it even worse if we have lived in the days of Jesus, saw his miracles, saw his crucifixion, saw his resurrection. How can we ever imagine not believing, not following, but people do? And they are judged by God, Jude says. They have a heart of unbelief. Everyone, Jude says, who goes after them, who are like them, who forget the lesson of those years, face the same judgment that they faced. They were, Jude writes, literally destroyed. They were cut off from God's people. It's a great warning here on every level. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 3 says, take care, brothers, he says, So he's making it an application in real life, current life, he says. Take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You begin to see the connection, don't you? As you understand what Jude's actually trying to do, he says, listen, these false teachers who have crept in unnoticed, they're turning, distorting, perverting the grace of God into sensuality. They're denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do that, the the work, the horrible work of the deceitfulness of sin begins to creep into our hearts and lives and we begin to find ourselves falling away from the Lord who once saved us. And it's possible, brothers and sisters, it's possible for us to be overwhelmed with a heart of unbelief. Sometimes that's for our ultimate good as God brings us to a place where we have never believed and we finally can trust truly in him. But other times it is this warning, this warning against unbelief, against forgetting these great lessons. Jesus pronounces many of his woes against those who have seen his works and refused to believe. Unbelief is the mother of all sin, one writer says. For their unbelief, Romans 11, they were broken off. That is, Israel was broken off from the vine. It was true of the Israelites and it is true of all of us. Unbelief is the fountain and source of all sin. The writer to the Hebrews again, I believe, speaking ultimately and maybe primarily to covenant children, even here this morning, young and older alike, 
issues, I think, a severe and yet very profitable warning. Even as covenant children come to take their place as full communing members of the visible church, there is a warning, the writer of Hebrews says. You know it well. They're hard words, but they are important. For if we go on sinning deliberately, we read earlier, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, he writes, do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are the very things that Jude is noting by these examples. The people of old had forgotten what God had done for them. And they fell into his judgment, and they were destroyed because of a heart of unbelief. Now, that's the first cautionary tale. I use that language, and I want to remind you even now, these are not children's stories. These are not stories as if they were fables. These are true examples in history that God is using, but they are cautionary tales. The second deals with the angels and their rebelliousness. This really is the sin of pride and arrogance, something of which Jude will write clearly about these false teachers. They were filled with pride and arrogance. Their ultimate description is again found in verse 4, in that they have perverted the grace of God into sensuality, denied our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. This is their, their arrogance, that they could destroy or turn around or... Uh, change the grace of God, which he has displayed in Christ. The angels here are used as an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did this to the angelic beings, who are by nature greater than us, mankind, what will he do with man who arrogantly throws off his rule? Now, I think as we look at this verse, it's verse 6, that we need to understand what he's talking about here I don't believe that God is talking here through his word about what some people interpret in Genesis chapter 6, that you have this marriage, they say, between the the sons uh, of man and the sons of God. Uh, I don't interpret it that way. Uh, I don't think most Reformed commentators interpret Genesis 6 that way. Um, I, I think it's a description of the the mixing of the sons of God, obedient to God, and the sons of men who are disobedient. And I think that's really what the picture is. But some argue that this is what it's referring to. I think what it's referring to is what we know to be true, that God created these angelic beings good and yet mutable. They could change, and some did. We know how the mighty have fallen from their first estate, does not refer to a supposed incident again in Genesis 6, but rather that original estate of perfection from which Satan and his angels fell. Jude will refer to this a little bit later in his letter about the fall of Satan from heaven. 
But this is, I think, what is in view here, their own position of authority. As God created them, good but mutable, some fell from that estate or that position and left their proper dwelling. Heaven itself, they were cast out, we know, according to the scriptures. And they were bound in chains or kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. This idea of being kept or bound in chains does not mean they are literally kept there, but that they are linked forever, connected forever with the judgment from which they could not escape. That they have been this way from the beginning, in that their fall preceded man's fall in the garden. And so this idea, this understanding of of what this means, I think, is this fall from a place of authority, their sin of pride and arrogance. You remember Jesus in John chapter 8 tells his hearers, in this case the Pharisees, that they are of their father the devil, for he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. He is the father of lies, and he is reserved for everlasting judgment. That example speaks to them as well with regard to pride and arrogance. Look at the angels and remember what God has done. Now, finally, we have the third example, their cautionary tale, and that comes from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities there as well. In each of these cases, Jude is reminding us of what he told us in verse 4. And this is an example of how they have perverted the grace of God and began to teach unnatural things according to these verses. So these examples relate directly to these false teachers. We need to remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. You heard read in Genesis 13 the origination of that story, how between Adam or Abram and Lot there was a division. Uh, Abram offered to Lot as he looked on the land about him from that vantage point. He looked at all the land and he said, I want you to choose where it is that you want to live and I will choose the opposite and will simply part ways. You remember that account. Lot looked at the land. He saw the land of the Jordan Valley, good for his flocks, good for crops, and he settled there. And the scriptures tell us, and it's really a very interesting passage, isn't it, that Lot then quickly began to move and settle near the city of Sodom. Now, there's a lot here that we could speak about, certainly with regard to the issues going on in our own day and how people seem to understand these things. I will say there's an argument out there, and perhaps you've heard it before, that uh, this is not a reference to any sort of unnatural desires or homosexuality as uh, the scriptures speak of it, that this is not what some argue this is speaking about at all. They actually link verses six and seven together and they say seven is just talking about the way that these men of Sodom desired the flesh of angels. You remember the story, right? It's sort of a disturbing story, but angels came in in order to save Lot and his family as God would have them in accordance with what Abraham had prayed for and asked for. And as those angels came, you remember the people, the men of the city particularly, came to the door and demanded that these men who had come into the town be given to them. 
And so they argue that verse 7 is just simply repeating verse 6, that, that what we have here when it talks about sexual immorality and unnatural desire, which literally means strange or different flesh, that what they really mean here is this idea of the angels is what they really wanted. Well, I think there are a number of problems with that. It would be strange, as Run Writer says, to refer to attempted intimacy or acts of intimacy with angels as pursuing other flesh. Of all the ways to reference angels, the very physical, human, and earthly sarks, which is the word for flesh, seems to be an odd choice. Secondly, the men of Sodom did not know at all that they were trying to have intimacy with angelic beings. If sarkos heteros, which is the strange flesh, could be taken to mean different species, and it really can't be, then the men of Sodom had no idea that it was that they were pursuing angels. Isn't it more likely, and I think it is, that they were guilty of pursuing intimacy with other men as they saw them because they appeared to them as men, and that they were guilty of pursuing, then rather they were guilty of pursuing intimacy with angels that they could not possibly know or understand. If pursuing unnatural desire or strange flesh is a reference to seeking out intimacy with angels, then how do we make sense of what he does say in the beginning of verse 7, which indicts not only Sodom and Gomorrah, but also the surrounding cities? We have no reference in the Bible that there, is, there are men of those cities that are pursuing these angels or angelic beings. It makes more sense, more sense to think that Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the surrounding cities all had a reputation for sexual immorality and that one flagrant example of this was their homosexual practice. I think that's very clear in the account itself. It's certainly clear in the New Testament, in Jude and in Peter as well, that this was their reputation and this was the perversion of distorting the grace of God and the way that it can end up. In short, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah and the whole region was not just a one-time attempted uh, intimacy of angelic beings, but according to Jude, it was a lifestyle, a lifestyle of sensuality and sexual immorality, at least of one aspect that exemplified itself of men pursuing the flesh of other men instead of the flesh of women, which the Bible teaches. False teachers who condone lifestyles like this are damning people to eternal judgment. For God has before us displayed his judgment upon these men and all that they practice. And he calls us here, Jude does, to avoid their paths. This is what Jude is reminding them through these, these cautionary tales. If God has so judged before these examples How can we possibly believe that he will not also today and on the great day of judgment do likewise? So three cautionary tales dealing with various aspects of the created order as God has made it. Things to consider as we sort of close out our study of these verses that we need to remember before moving on to the others. First, each picture here, and I want you to see this. This, I think, is important I think the writers of the Reformation Study Bible make this point in their notes. 
but it is a note, a note worth considering. Each of these pictures, each of these pictures are a picture of blessing or God's goodness forsaken, turned away from. You think of the first, the people of Israel that were delivered and saved by Jesus out of the land of Egypt. They were delivered. They were rescued. They were saved. And yet in response to that, they turned away from the Lord. They forsook what the Lord had taught them in that great thing, that great deliverance. And they rebelled against him and they were filled with unbelief. You think of the second example that include, or include, that speaks of the angels. They had the blessing of being created by God good and in his presence, dwelling in the fullness and presence of God. Who would ever leave that? And yet you read in Ezekiel and in Isaiah of Satan himself and the angels who went with him, who desired to be God, who desired to be exalted to the place of God. And so they turned away. And with arrogance and with pride, they exalted themselves above God. And so we see God's judgment come upon them as well. And then with Sodom and Gomorrah, and here's where I think the note is helpful. You don't see it directly, but you understand the story in Genesis 13. Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the other cities around them were in the plains of the Jordan Valley And they were lush and growing and had every provision for them. That's why Lot chose it. And yet those cities became cesspools of wickedness in the presence of God. And his fire from heaven fell upon them. They became an example, Jude says, of the punishment of eternal fire, which is why God destroyed them. So each of these pictures is a picture of people who had known the blessing and the goodness of God, and yet had forsaken him and turned away. The second thing to note is I want you to see how Jude includes here both the temporal judgment of God in the visible, if you will, and the invisible as well. The wrath of God reaches everywhere he intends. Wherever wickedness is, whether it be in the temporal and visible or in the invisible world of angelic beings, the wrath of God encompasses it all. And that is a terrible thing to consider and a warning to all who would live before him. And then three, notice that these examples are not chosen, I don't believe at all, randomly. They intentionally chosen under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Each one has links to the issues that these false teachers were presenting to the church and the struggles that these uh, people were facing through their false teaching. Well, I want to conclude as we just think about those things with really looking at the remedy, right? All of this is hard. It emphasizes something that we said earlier is very unnatural to the very being of God who is love, and yet it is true, and yet God has determined a day of his wrath. If these judgments of God are but a foreshadowing of what is to come, how then can sinners stand in that great day? Well, the answer is clear, isn't it? Perhaps you've not memorized all the way to the end of Jude, but you know the answer. You know the answer that God is able to enable us to keep us from stumbling, to cause us to stand. 
God is able to deliver us as we look to him and trust in him? The answer is clear. It's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We saw it at the very beginning, didn't we? Those who are called, those who are beloved in God the Father, and those who are kept for Jesus Christ. You'd see it's for good reason that we're going to end our service this morning by singing the hymn very familiar to us. We're going to use tune 499, which I know some of you like 500, but we're going to sing 499. It's okay. Same words, wonderful hymn, wonderful reminder of the safety we have in Jesus Christ. The hymn writer is Augustus Toplady. He was lived or he lived in the mid-1700s. Most of you know that name from some of the wonderful hymns that he's written that we still sing today. He was converted under Methodism, under Methodist preaching. He intended to become originally a Methodist minister. And yet soon after his conversion, he began studying the Bible and theology more closely, and he became a Calvinist, putting him very much at odds with Methodism and one of its leaders, main leaders, John Wesley. He and Wesley famously had great falling out in their theological debate and left a rift in their relationship that would never fully heal. Top Lady died when he was 38 at a very young age. Now, there is a common story, and I've told it before, a common story of the hymn that it was inspired, even perhaps written, and some versions say it was written on a playing card, that he was written in a rock or a cleft that was cut out in the midst of a, a larger rock there in a gorge in England that Top Lady took refuge in during a storm. As the storm, the story goes, raged all around him, he wrote down, scribbled down these words as a way to encourage himself, and therefore came the hymn. Now, what's interesting is because we tend to believe these kinds of things, it's probably unlikely that that's the story. But there is a rock in a gorge in Somerset, England, where you can go and you can find the cleft of the rock that people say Top Lady sat in during the storm, and there's even a plaque there claiming its place of fame. It is, again, unlikely that he wrote it that way. He probably didn't. One writer, I think, persuasively argues, based on the understanding of his life and history, that he probably wrote that hymn after reading the preface to John and Charles Wesley's Hymns on the Lord's Supper, which contains a prayer voicing many of the themes and the very words that are found in his hymn. Isn't that ironic? The man whom, with whom he had a falling out because of their theological differences would become a source for Top Lady in writing one of the most precious and beloved hymns that we have ever sung. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy riven side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. We'll sing the rest of the verses and stanzas. There are only four, but the last one is worth reading as well. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyelids close in death, and when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You see, Jude wants us to know, and I want you to know this morning, that there is no other place that we can find safety and rest than in Jesus, the rock of ages cleft for me. For Jude tells us in these verses that God has displayed that judgment in specific ways throughout redemptive history. 
so that we might be warned not to live carelessly and forgetfully in this fallen world, but that we might heed the warning that he gives to us, that we might know the end of all who come into the church to destroy it, and that we might flee to Christ for protection in the wrath that is coming. Even if it is unlike our God who is love, he will display his wrath, he will display his judgments. Have you found him to be so, this savior, this cleft of a rock for you this morning? Have you come to know the salvation that is only found in Jesus? And have you come to trust him alone for your salvation? And know that when he returns in judgment that you are safe in him. For there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No fear of judgment. Learn the lessons. Heed the cautionary tales. Cling and free, flee to Christ in whom you have every hope. Let us pray. Our Father, it is good for us to end this story, these stories of judgment and of wrath and of eternal fires of punishment by considering the very way that you have provided for all who would look unto him, that is Jesus Christ. He is a rock, a fortress, a place of safety in the day of judgment. May you work among us in such a way that by your spirit you might enable us all, each and every one of us, from the youngest to the eldest, to find their hope, their safety in Jesus. We pray this and ask it all with thanksgiving in his name. Amen. Amen. We encourage one another when we sing, so hear these words as we sing them, listen to them as you sing them, and rejoice in the one who is our rock and mighty fortress. 499, again, 499, not 500, 499. We'll sing this hymn to the praise of our God.
Now receive the Lord's blessing, his benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the love of God, our Heavenly Father, and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.